In Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29, the verses that Pastor Curtis just read, we have a description from Paul. A description of his ministry. And he gives a description of his ministry as an illustration of the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. So, he's presenting himself as an example in the middle of everything that he's been talking about. The supremacy, sufficiency, preeminency of Jesus Christ. And now Paul, in the middle of that, he presents himself as an example of one in whom Christ is preeminent. So we'll hear this testimony and study this testimony of Paul today. In whom Christ was preeminent. Number one, nothing beside Him, nothing before Him. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray. Will you bow your heads with me? Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for this day. God, we thank You for creating us and giving us ears to hear and, and minds to think so that we could hear Your Word today and know You better and know ourselves better and what You expect from us and what You call us to do. So help us in all these things to hear well and to think well. And we ask that Your Word would do a work in us and it would change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you'll remember what's taking place in this town to which Paul is writing, this town of Colossae where the church, the Christians are gathered. Paul is writing to them and there's false teachers there with false teaching. And though we don't know a lot of the specifics about the false teaching that was there, we know that it is threatening to uh, unseat Christ as primary in the hearts of the Christians there. So it has something to do with putting something else beside Christ or putting something else before Christ. It has something to do with diminishing the work of Christ or marginalizing the work of Christ. So it's, it's in some way Jesus plus something else. And so Paul is writing them to remind them of the Gospel they had already heard, the good news they had heard, the preaching that they had heard. And he's telling them, listen, this new teaching you're hearing is not consistent with the truth that I taught you. And you don't need any new teaching. You don't need any new revelation. You don't need anything you know, 2.0. What you have is the truth. And the truth is all that you need. So he writes them this letter. And he opens up his letter with prayer. We read through that. Opens up his letter with prayer. He thanks God for what God has done, what God is doing in the Colossians. And then, the conclusion of this prayer where he brings up Jesus Christ, he then begins to teach and remind the Colossians about Jesus and why He is preeminent. He gives his twofold basis, two reasons why Jesus needs to be number one, first place in your hearts, Colossians, and it would be for us too. Remember the two reasons he gives? He says Jesus is the Lord of creation and He's the Lord of redemption. He's the Lord of creation. You wouldn't be here, anyone, if it wasn't for Jesus. And then He says you wouldn't be here, Colossians, Christians, if it wasn't for Jesus. You wouldn't know God. You'd still be 
wandering around, stubbing your toes in the dark. You wouldn't know what was up and what was down, what was right and what was wrong, eternally speaking, spiritually speaking, lost, but you've been found because of Christ. He's the Lord of your redemption. So He should be at first place in your heart. And then He focused in, and we looked at this last week, and then He focused in specifically after saying that Jesus is the Lord of redemption, He's telling the Colossians personally, connects it to them. And He's the Lord of your redemption. He's the Lord of your redemption. You're where you are now, reconciled to God the Father because of Jesus. That's what He did in verses 21-23, through the verses right before our text today. Let me read them again. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And now that leads us into our text today. So at the end of that section in verse 23, Paul says, you've been reconciled to Jesus Christ, and I was the one who was used by God to bring you that good news. To bring you that message of the Gospel. I am a minister of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So now what we have today is after Paul says that he is a minister of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, he goes on to describe his ministry. And that's what we're reading today. So he goes on now to describe his ministry. So what we're doing this morning is looking more closely at the ministry of the Apostle Paul. This is a very common text for pastors for the last 2,000 years to, to use and to return to over and over again to be reminded of what is at the heart of ministry. What it means to be a minister of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and to help people and serve people. To be a pastor in the pattern of Paul. So we're taking a closer look at his ministry. And we'll look at it in, in three sections this morning. There are three things that Paul describes about his ministry and three questions for us, if we had them, that he answers. The first is, what is the experience? Or what was the experience of Paul's ministry? He tells us that. In other words, what was your ministry like, Paul? And the answer is, his ministry was difficult. It was a difficult ministry. A ministry laden with suffering. That will be the experience of his ministry. And we'll look at that in verses 24 and 29. The second question we may ask is, Paul, what, what was the goal of your ministry? Why are you ministering? What is the goal at the end of all of this, and we will have that answered in the second part of verse 28. And the goal of Paul's ministry is mature Christians. 
Mature Christians. That's what Paul is after. Mature Christians. And then finally, we might ask a third question. What was the task of your ministry, Paul? Okay, so we hear what the experience of your ministry was like. We know the end game. We know the goal of your ministry. Now, what was the task of your ministry? What were you actually doing in order to minister? And the answer to that question is that the task of Paul's ministry was to make the Word of God fully known. So to summarize those three answered questions, Paul, we're learning today, suffered greatly as he strived to make the Word of God fully known that he may present everyone mature in Christ. There's a summary of verses 24-29. through And now we'll look more closely at each of those. But again, the summary, Paul suffered greatly as he strived to make the Word of God fully known that he may present everyone mature in Christ. So number one, let's look at the experience of Paul's ministry. You want to know about Paul. Paul, what was your ministry like? Tell us about the experience of your ministry. Verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church. That tells us something of His experience. And so does verse 29 if you skip down. At the end of everything Paul is going to say here, he says this, for this, that this is everything we're going to read today, for all of that, this ministry, I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. So did you hear those words in those two verses? Sufferings, afflictions, toil, struggling. That's where I get the answer to the question, Paul, what was the experience of your ministry? That's where I get the answer. Difficult. Difficult. Paul does not say anywhere that this is a breeze. That this just came easy for me. Smooth sailing. So glad I was called to the ministry because I didn't know life could be this easy going. Paul never says anything like that. He's so thankful that God has called him to do what he's doing, but it's not because trouble has been removed from his life. That should make you feel good if you're a Christian in a lot of trouble. And if you're a Christian today, you're in a lot of trouble. You've been saved from the worst trouble. But you know and I know, you're still in a lot of trouble. You struggle, don't you? It's difficult. you got sin within. you got sin without. You're sinning against people. People are sinning against you. You've got struggles in your family, in your relationships, in your church, in your workplace. There's trouble. Don't be surprised. So verse 29, and then we'll look at verse 24. Again, Paul says, For this I toil. That's not a word many of you use a lot. It would sound sort of archaic if, if you did use it, right? You described your toil of the day. But by this word, he, he means hard labor. Hard work. Blood, sweat, tears. This is difficult. 
He's working very hard. In fact, how hard is he working? Well, his toiling, his working, he says, requires not only all of his strength, not only all of his strength, but Christ's energy working powerfully within him. How much energy do you need, Paul, to do this ministry? Well, there's my energy. You know what your energy is, right? Your energy is like what's in the tank. Right? If you're like me, by the end of the day, that tank is what? It's empty. Right? You read the Bible, you pray in the morning or in the evening, you get some sleep, and it sort of feels like, you know, we use expressions like refill my tank, recharge my batteries. Some of you at the end of the day, you know that experience. You're just done. You're just done. Some of you know what it's like at the end of the day to just look at your spouse and just say, I can't have a conversation with you right now. I would really like to have a conversation with you. And, and I, see, I, I see your lips moving right now. But I've got to tell you, I'm not hearing it. I'm so wiped out. I'm so exhausted. And I'm so sorry. But I just I can't talk right now. You've had those kind of honest conversations before, right? I'm just done. No energy left. Paul says, I'm using all my energy to do this ministry. But not only that, for this I toil, struggling with all His energy. Who's the His? Jesus with all Christ's energy that He powerfully works within me. So there's something there about the the life and work and ministry of a Christian that there is energy, strength that actually comes from outside of you through Christ who's in you, working through you. So you've got your tank, but you've got His tank. So you're able to do things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. You're able to say things you wouldn't otherwise be able to say. There's courage that you wouldn't otherwise have. Boldness you wouldn't otherwise have. Conviction you wouldn't otherwise have. Strength you wouldn't otherwise have. And that should be your experience in that sense as a Christian. And I couldn't do the things that I do apart from Christ. So he's working, he's toiling, he's struggling. And then verse 24. There's two parts to this verse 24. And we need to we'll look at them one at a time. And, and the second part it's difficult. It's difficult to get at what Paul means. So we've got to work through that. But here he is describing this difficult ministry. First he says, the first part of verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Do you all know how much Paul suffered? Paul suffered greatly. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23-28. through where Paul recounts a lot of his suffering. Not all of it, but a lot of it. This is what he says. Listen to his life. I am talking like a madman. That's how he opens up. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. He gets more specific. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, he means hit with rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Come on, Paul. Really? Really? He goes on. On frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from Robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil, there's that word again, and hardship through many a sleepless night 
in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He was suffering when he wrote this letter of Colossians. He's probably imprisoned in Rome when he's writing this letter. We have this account of a lot of the suffering in his life. And he knew that when he was writing Colossians, there was also a lot more suffering in store for him. He knew that his entire life was going to be a life of great suffering. He knew that because if you remember back to Acts chapter 9, Jesus told him that his life was going to be full of suffering. When he first became a Christian, Paul was saved in a dramatic way. And when he first became a Christian, he was told by Jesus that his ministry was going to lead to great suffering. Paul gets saved. He's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. God saves Paul on the road to Damascus. And then God appears to Ananias, a disciple in Damascus, and says, I want you to show Paul hospitality. And Ananias says, I don't know about this guy. And Jesus said this about Paul. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And then listen to Acts 9, verse 16. For I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul knew at the very beginning there was going to be great suffering. And Paul's a great example to us because not only did he suffer, he suffered well. What does he say? He rejoices in his sufferings. He considered it an honor to suffer. I love Jesus. I'm following Jesus. He suffered for me. If I can suffer because I'm a Christian, I consider it an honor, Paul would say. He also saw the fruitfulness of his suffering. He says this all over the place and he's going to make it plain today. He says, I've realized something. When I suffer, there's fruit that it bears in other Christians. And through my suffering... The Gospel is going farther and deeper. So I'm, I'm just glad to suffer. It doesn't mean when he says that that he likes pain. That's not what he's saying. That I enjoy pain. What he's saying is I see the fruitfulness of my suffering. The Gospel is going farther and the Gospel is going deeper and I see that that's directly connected to how much I suffer. The more I suffer, the farther the Gospel goes. The more I suffer, the deeper the Gospel goes. So, I rejoice in my suffering. 2 Corinthians 1, 5-7, Paul said, For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So he sees the great good that comes through suffering. And so he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And now in the second half of verse 24. Read this with me. In the second half of verse 24, Paul explains a bit of the suffering. He gives us a deeper insight into this suffering. He gives us deeper understanding into why he's able to rejoice in his suffering by saying this, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, 
That is the church. What does this mean? What is Paul saying? It might not sound good at first, does it? For those of you that are Christians, this might sound off. This might sound wrong because the question you should ask is, well, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Hold on a minute. There's nothing lacking in there's nothing lacking in anything in Christ. Paul, isn't that what you've been telling us? So what do you mean? This sound you sound like these false teachers, Paul. That you're adding to, you're filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What are you saying, Paul, that it was insufficient? That you need to do something now to complete the work of Christ? That the work of Christ needs to be added to by Paul? Are you saying the affliction of Christ is insufficient? That it's lacking? And so now there's something, Paul, that you bring to the table and you fill it up? Is that what Paul is saying? That there's some sort of deficiency in Christ's affliction? Of course that's not what Paul is saying. Okay, Eric, how do you know that that's not what Paul is saying? Well, because Paul has just spent 23 verses explaining to us why Christ is sufficient. So he doesn't just go in verse 24 and forget everything that he just said and say something completely different. So it has to fit right, with the context, with what Paul has already said. And he's clearly saying that the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient, that you don't need anything other than Jesus, number one, first place, Preeminent. So what is it that Paul is saying? So there's a few things for us to understand here. The first way, and you need to think about it this way when you read it, to read it carefully, is Paul is talking about the afflictions of Christ, not the affliction of Christ. And there's a difference. The afflictions, that's what he says, of Christ, not the affliction of We're not talking about the death of Jesus on the cross. Paul is not talking about the death of Jesus on the cross. He's not talking about Christ's redemptive sufferings, which are, as Jesus said on the cross, it is, what did he say? Finished. Not almost. He didn't say it's almost done. And then Paul come along and finish. He doesn't say that. It is finished. So Paul's not talking about the affliction of, of Christ on the cross. That's done, sufficient, does not need to be added to. Paul is talking about the afflictions of Christ's people which Christ endures right now at the right hand of God. That's what he's talking about. When he speaks of Christ's afflictions that are lacking, they're not done yet. The suffering of Christ is not done yet. He's talking about the suffering of Christ's people which Christ is enduring at the right hand of God right now. And Paul is a part of that as he suffers as a Christian. So Paul is not talking about the suffering of Christ, but the sufferings of Christ which are still taking place and which Christ is still enduring today. Listen, Jesus is not done suffering. Jesus is not done suffering. He is still suffering today. 
Not in His physical body. That would have finished where? On the cross. Christ today is not suffering in His physical body. But He is suffering today in His spiritual body. What is Christ's spiritual body? The church. What does Paul say? And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body. That is the church. So Paul Ligon Duncan summarizes it this way is speaking of the sufferings which we endure as the body of Christ while our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, is at the right hand of God. Listen, though Christ is exalted right now at the right hand of God, He still suffers through His members. When His body suffers, He suffers. When you suffer, He suffers. He's our great empathizer, isn't He? He's our great sympathizer, isn't He? Paul learned this when he was... Remember when Paul was on the other side of suffering Christians? He was making Christians suffer. Making Christians suffer. And when Jesus came to him, He didn't say, why are you persecuting all the Christians? Remember what Jesus said? Saul, why are you persecuting Me? Paul, Saul at the time, you're persecuting me, Christ said. I am enduring suffering at your hands. Well, what was Paul doing? He was making Christians suffer. The body of Christ. Philippians 1, 29-30 For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So here's Paul saying, here, let me tell you about the experience of my ministry. It has been wrought with suffering. It's been a lot of suffering, but my suffering is for your sake. He connects it to these people. He says, I am a part of the suffering that still needs to take place before Jesus comes back. His body is going to suffer, but there will come an end to that suffering when Jesus returns and takes His body to the new heavens, the new earth. But for now, His body, His spiritual body, the church, is going to suffer. And Paul says, I take great joy that when I suffer, and I rejoice in that suffering, it's for you. It's for the church. It's for God's people. And here's what many of the commentators say about this, and I found it fascinating still don't totally have my head around it, but it's something for you to think about. There is, in terms of the suffering that the church will endure between Jesus going to heaven and Jesus coming down from heaven, however long that is, though we don't know how long that is, there is, and we don't know what it is, a sum total of the church suffering. We don't know what that total is and how much suffering there will be, but God does. There is a sum total of all the suffering that the church will endure. So many of the commentators believe that what Paul believed is that the more I suffer, Paul believed, the more I suffer as a Christian, the less Christians suffer. Does that make sense? So there's a sum total of suffering that Christians have to endure. And the more suffering I endure within that sum, the less other Christians are going to have to suffer. And I love you and I don't want you to suffer. Isn't that beautiful? 
So he says, I'm, I'm happy. I'm rejoicing in my suffering. The New Bible Commentary, D.A. Carson said, Paul contributes to the sum total to what is still lacking. That explains the word lacking. The more he suffers, the less the Colossians have to suffer. Or the word biblical commentary says it this way, the more of these sufferings he personally absorbed as he went about preaching the Gospel, the less would remain for his fellow Christians to endure. And we know Paul loved the church. He loved the church. He loved God's people. He says, hey, here's my understanding. The more I suffer, the less you suffer. So his mindset was, friends, listen. Bring it on. Just bring it on. If it means that my spiritual children, that my children would suffer less. Isn't that how you feel like as a parent? I mean, what parent wouldn't say as they see their child suffering in any number of ways, if I could if I could trade all my good days and suffer so that he or she would not need to suffer in that way. What parent doesn't say, I'd do it. I'd do it in a heartbeat. Well, this is how Paul feels about the church. He has the heart of Christ for the church. And it's how Paul's suffering could be for the sake of people he's never even met. Because remember, he'd never met the Colossians. He'd met one of them. Their pastor became to see him. So friends, I would encourage you to ask this question at the conclusion of that section. To understand the experience of Paul's ministry and the difficulty of Paul's ministry, ask yourself whether or not you are suffering as a Christian. Or let me word that differently. Are you suffering because you're a Christian? There's a difference. And Paul's not talking about just Christians who suffer. He's talking about specifically suffering because you're a Christian. As Christians, you're going to have both of those sufferings. You're going to suffer and be a Christian. And you're going to suffer because you're a Christian. Now, we may not experience it today in this country with the freedoms and liberties that we have in the ways that many of God's people that have gone before us have suffered. But I'm sure many of you are with me when you say, I think my grandkids and my great-grandkids are going to taste a lot more of this suffering for being a Christian than I am in my lifetime. If you're paying attention, as I know many of you are, to even what's taking place in our country, I think you all know it is becoming increasingly hostile toward Christians and toward the Gospel and toward God. And unless something changes, and something can change, and we pray that something changes, do we not have a duty to train up one another and our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren to be able to withstand underneath those great pressures? How are you suffering today because you are a Christian? Think about that. Like, well, I haven't been shipwrecked. It's been a while since I was whipped 39 times. I haven't been stoned the way Paul was stoned. I don't have these same experiences that he had. I wonder if you could, though, connect with the one he gave us in verse 28 of 2 Corinthians 11 when he said after that long list, and apart from other things, and he says, 
there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now when I read that, I hear Paul saying, okay, I've, I've, I've gone through all these experiences, but then there's this daily pressure, this gnawing pressure, and it is my anxiety, my worry, my concern for Christians. And when I think of that daily pressure, I remember my brother pinning me down when I was a kid and taking his index finger. You know this move? You know where I'm going? He pinned me down in his knees, one knee here and one knee here. And he would straddle me so I couldn't move my arms or my legs. And then what would he do with the index finger? Like a woodpecker, right? Some of you experienced that? Okay, two of you. Totally wasted illustration. I apologize. <laughs> Daily pressure. Can't get away from it. No matter what he does, he just can't get away from what? What is this suffering that he's talking about? I have this anxiety. Good anxiety, by the way. This isn't bad anxiety. There's good and bad anxiety. This is good anxiety. Worry. Concern. What can I do? How can I change this? How can I be a part of... And it's his fellow Christians. Those of you your parents, you feel that for your children. You feel that for your parents' children, for your brothers, for your sisters, for your family, for other Christians you know, for those you know who are not yet Christians. Well, you wouldn't have that sort of suffering, that sort of anxiety if you weren't a Christian. For some of you, it's heavy. In what ways do you suffer because you are a Christian? So that is the experience of Paul's ministry. We hear something of it there. And now... Paul, what is the goal of your ministry? That's what your ministry is like. Now, what is the goal? What is the end game of your ministry? What are you doing all this for? And he tells us in the second part of verse 28, what does he say? The first part, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that, what's his goal, we may present everyone mature in Christ. So what is Paul's goal? His goal is maturity in Christians. What should our goal be as a church? Maturity in ourselves as Christians. So listen, Paul's goal is not conversion. Paul's goal is not conversion. Paul is not the guy, not that there's anything wrong with the guy, but Paul is not the guy who fills a stadium. And shares the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And has droves of people come forward and make decisions. And then goes home satisfied. Thinking he's done anything. Paul's goal is not decisions. Paul's goal is not a full altar call. Paul's goal is not conversion. Paul's goal in his ministry is maturity. Not that you say yes to Jesus today, but that you say yes to Jesus tomorrow and the day after and the day after. More and better disciples, if you will. Maturity is the goal. As well, this would be our goal as a church, right? Our goal is the maturity of each and every one of you to present each of you mature in Christ. Listen to Ephesians 4. A helpful, uh, similar text. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. You'll hear the same thoughts here. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, 
for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now listen to all the things he says about maturing. To mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children. Maturing. No longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Paul's goal was the maturity of Christians. Not just that they would become Christians, but that they would grow up as Christians. What does the context of Colossians tell us this maturity looks like? This is what maturity in a Christian looks like. Jesus Christ is preeminent in your heart. And Lord willing, right, in five years, if you're still here, He is more preeminent then than He is now. Listen, Christians are like trees. They grow. Throughout Scripture, it actually compares God's people to trees. And you'd be planted by streams of living water, yield its fruit in season, tell a good tree by good fruit, bad tree by bad fruit, and on and on. Christians grow. Now, some of you don't grow as fast as you want to grow. I certainly don't. And sometimes that growth is incremental. Sometimes it's barely noticeable. So be encouraged. But there is growth. Constant, steady growth. It may not be big. It may not be dramatic. It may not be this sort of Hollywood, in lights, dramatic change that you'd like to see. But it will be the ordinary, steady growth of a Christian. And Paul says, that's what I'm after. My goal is the maturing of Christians. And here's what that looks like. For a Christian to be mature, there is no doubt in their mind and in the minds of others regarding them that Christ is preeminent. Listen, for those Christians who are mature, it's not something you have to dig deep to figure out. Is this Christian mature? Well, I don't know. I'm not really sure. Well, if you don't know and you're not really sure, probably not. It should be evident. Now, sometimes something that appears to be maturity, when you dig deeper, you find out that it's not. But a Christian who is mature, who has Christ as preeminent in their life, you're going to notice this. You're going to see a change. You're going to see the difference. It means we have to kind of redefine what we think maturity is. Maturity is not age. That's not the kind of maturity that Paul is talking about. Maturity is not age or accomplishments or status or leadership positions. Maturity has to do with the preeminence of Christ in a Christian's heart. Their devotion to Him as Lord. The holiness that is manifested in their life. The godliness that is manifested in their life. The way they conduct themselves. The way they speak. The way they live their lives. It's evident. So in that sense, you can have, right? 
a 20-year-old who is a very mature Christian. And isn't the opposite true? And you can have a 70-year-old Christian who is very immature. Very immature. Because it has to do with the preeminence of Christ in one's heart. Are you a mature Christian? Or are you a maturing Christian? Is Christ becoming increasingly preeminent in your heart? Do you love Him more? Do you have greater affection for Him? Are you broken over more sin? Convicted over more sin? Are you willing to give up more than you used to be willing to give up? Do you recognize His gifts more than you used to recognize His gifts? Do you see His blessings where you didn't see His blessings? Do you know His Word more? Do you know His truth more? Are you closer to Him? Do you commune with Him differently than you did before? Is He becoming more of a priority in your life? Is He becoming more ultimate in your life? Is He and His Gospel becoming more and more the very center of everything that you do and everything that you are? Paul says that is the goal of his ministry. Certainly the goal of our ministry here to one another is that we may be mature in Christ. And now finally, the third question that we may ask about Paul's ministry that he answers here, having already asked, Paul, what is the experience of your ministry? It's a difficult ministry. What was the goal of your ministry to present all these men and women mature in Christ? I'm after mature Christians. Okay, Paul. What was the task of your ministry? So how did you do that? So in other words, what were you doing that brought so much suffering into your life? What were you doing that brought so much suffering into your life? And what were you doing to try to ensure that people who are maturing in Christ? Because we know that that's what was happening. Whatever he was doing, it was to help people mature in Christ. And whatever he was doing meant that he was going to suffer a lot. And his answer is sort of interestingly he describes the task of his ministry because you might think, well, why would that lead to suffering? But this is what Paul says, and let's look at verses 25 through 27, of which I became a minister. Now he's going to describe the task of his ministry according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. There it is in summary. He's going to go on, but that's it. Paul, what is the task of your ministry? To make the Word of God fully known. Paul wants to make the Word of God known. God has revealed Himself in His Word to Paul, to the prophets, to the other apostles, and Paul wants to get the Word out. I did not hesitate, he says in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders, to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. I'm not holding anything back. I'm not just going to preach from one book of the Bible for 20 years. The whole counsel of God, Old Testament, New Testament, books of poetry, books of history, the gospel accounts, all of it. That's what Paul said he wanted to do, the task of his ministry to make the word of God fully known. He gets more specific. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
So Paul, what was the task of your ministry? And he tells us to make the Word of God fully known. And what is this Word of God that he wants to make fully known as he describes it in verse 28? The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. Mystery. An unfolding truth. So Paul means here and elsewhere when he talks about this mystery of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not called a mystery because it can't be understood, but because it has been hidden for ages and has now been revealed to the saints. Isn't that what Paul says? Paul is speaking of God's unfolding plan for the world and above all, His plan of redemption through the Messiah. So what Paul is making known is the mystery of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. A secret that was hidden for a long time, but now has made completely clear through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you had for so many years God's people hearing bits and pieces of this good news and that light getting brighter and brighter. What started is just a little pinhole sized light in Genesis 3.15. So a little bit of hope to God's people. And you read and it gets brighter and brighter. He gives them laws and rituals and ceremonies, but they're all pointing to something. They're all a shadow of something greater in the future. And now here Christ comes and fulfills the law. They find that He is the point and the purpose of all of these ceremonies. Now they understand that here they were shedding the blood of these lambs so their sins could be overlooked. And now here He's called the Lamb of God. The One who would be slain for all His people. Okay, the, the Gospel light is getting brightest. Enlightenment is at its fullest. We're hearing the full Gospel. So a mystery that was hidden for ages but is now being revealed to the saints is what Paul is talking about. He mentions this also in Ephesians 3, 1-6. through For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. The ESV Study Bible comments here. At the heart of the mystery that God is now revealing through Paul is the amazing hallmark of the new covenant. Christ in you, the hope of glory. God Himself in the person of Christ will be directly and personally present in the lives of His people. And His presence assures them of a future life with Him when He returns. Moreover, Christ does not reside only in believing Jews, but also in believing Gentiles so that there is one unified people of God. 
And then even more specifically in verse 28, how does Paul do this? How is he making the Word of God fully known? This mystery. Three things he says. Verse 28, Him, that's Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And then there it is, the goal that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul says, I have this Word of God. I have this Gospel. And with this Gospel, I'm proclaiming, I'm teaching, and I'm warning. Proclaiming the Gospel. Not just proclaiming the Gospel, and declaring the Gospel, and heralding the Gospel, but then teaching the Gospel. This is why you don't just come one Sunday as a Christian, and then you're done. I became a Christian, I come one Sunday, I hear the Gospel, and now I'm done. But you keep coming. Why? Because you want to be taught God's Word. You want to be taught the Gospel. It's been proclaimed to you, but now you want to be taught the depth and the intricacies of God's Word and God's truth. You want to know Him more and know Him more fully. But there's also, do you hear what Paul says? There's also an edge to his proclamation of the Gospel. There's an edge to his teaching. He says, I'm warning everyone. This proclamation of the Gospel, this teaching of the Gospel, has an edge, doesn't it? It's a warning. It it really is, believe this. Believe this truth. This is who Jesus is. This is what He's done. We proclaim that truth. The message is, believe this Gospel. Trust this Gospel. But here's here's the warning edge to that that we're not embarrassed of. And it is, believe this or else. Or else. We want to make that very clear that we're not just trying to promote a religion besides all the other religions that we think will be more beneficial to you than these other religions. And so we're trying to sell it. No, there's an edge. There's an edge to our teaching of the Gospel. And the edge to the teaching of the Gospel is a warning that if you don't believe this Gospel and you reject this Gospel, it, eternally speaking, will not go well for you. And so we're telling you that because we love you. And we're concerned for you. And we're going to keep telling you and keep praying for you because we don't think that there's other ways to God. We think that Jesus meant it when He said, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the light. The only way to the Father is through Me. The only way to the Father, Christ said, is through Me. When Jesus said that, there was an edge to what He was saying. That was a warning. I know there's a lot of paths. I'm not telling you this is the best path. This is the only path. The only one. And so too, when we teach the Gospel, when we preach the Gospel, when we proclaim the Gospel in our churches and in our families, in our schools, in our workplaces, wherever it is that we can preach the Gospel, there's proclamation, there is teaching, but there is an edge to it. There is a warning that says, believe this. And these are the consequences, friend of not believing this. So the question for us today is what is the experience of our Christian life? Is there anything similar in our life to that of Paul's life? In your ministry, you're all ministers of reconciliation. And as you exercise that ministry, what 
what kinds of consequences do you find? What kinds of inner struggles do you find and outer struggles do you find? Is it anything similar to the trouble and the difficulty that Paul faced? Should there be more difficulty in your life than there is? Are you actually trying to avoid trouble and avoid difficulty? And so you're not being courageous and bold with the Gospel. Is Christ preeminent in your life? Are you growing in your maturity? And do you understand that the way to that maturity is the Word of God being made known fully in your heart and in the hearts of those around you? In conclusion, to summarize again, we learn a lot about Paul's ministry as the Colossians learned a lot about Paul's ministry here. His ministry was a difficult ministry. The task of his ministry was making fully known the Word of God. And Paul lived and breathed. His goal, he lived and breathed that he may present others mature in Christ. You and I should thank God for Paul today. I think. Maybe in your prayers immediately following this sermon, maybe on your way home, maybe in your devotions tonight or tomorrow morning, you should thank God for Paul. I would assume that most of you fit into the category of Gentile. We may have some Jewish people here today or Jewish believers here today, but most of us are Gentiles. We are not Jews. And you would not be a Christian today if it weren't for Paul. He was Christ's ambassador to the Gentiles. To take the Gospel, to take the Word of God to all nations. Thank you, God, for saving Paul, for raising up Paul, that we could hear the message of Your Gospel and be saved today. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word, which is life to us. And we ask that You would continue to mature us and deepen our understanding of You, who You are, and what You've done, that we may worship You more and honor You more and bring You more glory. We ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.